I think you would agree with me if I said that understanding what is valuable and what's not is absolutely crucial to a life well lived. Sad thing is, there's a lot of folks that spend their lifetime majoring on minors. And if you don't know what's important, you're going to spend your life on what doesn't really matter. That's the way that most people live. They just exist. They go through the time allotted here upon this earth and come down to the end of life feeling as there is no great significance to their presence here on earth. What a sad thing that is. I want to speak to you on a subject this morning that, that is, as the Bible says, it is of greater value than silver, gold, rubies, or anything that you could desire. Let that sink in for a minute. You know, the silver, the gold, and the rubies, and things like that, well, we could might understand, but, but the Lord was careful to add those words, the things that beyond what you could ever even desire. And the subject that I'm talking about is the subject of wisdom. In Proverbs 4 and verse 7, it says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Now, if it's the principal thing, that means it's at the top of the list and something that we all should strive for. It's of more value than silver, gold, rubies, or anything that we could even desire. That ought to make it important to us today. And here in James chapter 3, beginning in verse number 13, James says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a, out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy, and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. There are many things in life that uh, we do not recognize to be of any great value. And... Uh, they're often described by words that we commonly use and we really don't give any serious thought uh, to their meaning. And I think wisdom is one of those things that I'm talking about. It's a word we hear all of the time, but it's something that most people really don't give any serious thought to and uh, they don't study it, they don't seek it, and not really all that concerned about it. In fact, they don't even know how to recognize true wisdom when they see it. Now, in this section of Scripture that we just read, we see James here 
drawing a contrast between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom that, as he says, is from above. Notice how the section begins. Verse 13 says, Who is a wise man? Who is a wise man? Well, take a survey. From pole to pole, and if you do, you'll get a variety of different answers. You'll hear people talk about somebody having wisdom because they're, they're really sharp, they're quick-witted, they're clever, or whatever. But getting to the right answer is another thing. This is a great question. Who is a wise man? That's a question that we need to ask. It's a question that needs to be answered. And we need to ask it because it challenges all of our assumptions and our assertions that we find in the world. We need to answer it because the world is clearly off track. And it's off track simply because of a lack of the wisdom, as he says here, is from above. It's easy for us to see where the wisdom of this world has taken us. Just look around, see the mess that we're in today. And oftentimes people will ask the question, what in the world is wrong with the world? Well, the answer to that question is the wisdom of this world. That's what's wrong. This lack of wisdom from above, dependence upon the wisdom of the world is what is wrong with the world. Notice he describes the wisdom of this world as being earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish. That reminds us of our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here in verses 14, 15, and 16, he's describing the effects of worldly wisdom. And it's easy to see that we don't know how to live peaceably with one another. The world's full of hate rather than love, strife rather than peace. And and if you think we don't need this wisdom from above, you just look at what we're doing to ourselves. Without Without a foreign invasion of our country, consider what's going on in America today. Without an onslaught of persecution in our churches, look at the condition of so many churches today. Think about what's happening to the family institution today. And it's all the result of us following the wisdom of this world. It's beyond stupid. It's absolutely insane what we're doing to ourselves We're hurting ourselves and we're hurting others. So who is the wise man? Well, to answer this question, we've got to go to an outside source. We can't depend upon what others tell us. We can't depend upon what we think about the subject because as Jeremiah reminds us, the way of man's not in himself. It's not a man that walketh to know how he ought to live, how he ought to walk, what he ought to do. We don't have that ability. So we've got to look at an outside source, and that source is here in the Word of God. God has provided us with exactly what we need. And wisdom would have us to speak on that subject. Look at verse 13 again, where it says, Let him show, that is, reveal, manifest, Make known out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. That fits right in with what Jesus said 
when he said that we are to let our light shine before men. In other words, God expects us to live in such a way that we are known to be wise. Not because of some braggart that we go around telling people that we have great wisdom, but rather through the manner of our life. There is a manifestation of wisdom. It becomes obvious to them. And I've got to tell you what I see in some churches today is stupid, it's sinful, it's shameful. And it all goes on in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity. And, and the sad thing is most people are too blind to even understand what is going on. We need, listen, we need churches. This church ought to be a church that is known for its wisdom as well as its friendliness, as its helpfulness, as its love. I think anybody that knows anything about this church would say we've got a great reputation for being a friendly church. And I'm so glad. There's no excuse for, for a church not being friendly. None whatsoever. But we ought to be known also for our wisdom. Now, what in the world do we mean by wisdom? We use that word all the time, but what in the world do we mean Wisdom is knowing what to do and how to do it. It's the ability to judge correctly and follow the right and the best course of action. In other words, it's the proper use of knowledge. And, and so that's what wisdom is. We, we could spend hours quoting uh, men down through the centuries trying to describe wisdom, but that's it in a nutshell. That's wisdom, but where does this wisdom come from? Well, James tells us that it's not found in this world, but rather that it is a wisdom that is from above, and he reminds us in the very first chapter that those who lack it may receive it by simply asking for it. In other words, wisdom is not something that just comes uninvited into your life. It's not something that kicks down the door of your heart and just marches in and takes control. It's something we have to desire, something that we have to ask for, something that we receive. It is the fruit of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not through human effort. But that's where it comes from. We know what it is, but how do we recognize it? How is wisdom demonstrated? Remember, we just mentioned back in verse 13, we are to show wisdom to the world. Well, we could read all of the quotes of different people on this subject, and, and uh, we could try to read everything that God has to say about wisdom. And, 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 and by, by the way, even if we tried just this section here, would take me the next three months preaching every service to get through this section. So I want you to understand that there's no way we can cover the entirety of this subject. We could talk about the transmission of wisdom and the teachings of wisdom, the treasure of wisdom. But this morning, I want you to understand the traits of wisdom, how the ways of wisdom. That's the title of the message, the ways of wisdom. How do we recognize it? Because if we don't know how to recognize it, we won't know whether we have it or not. And if we don't have wisdom, we're headed for trouble. 
So how in the world do we recognize whether or not we're walking in wisdom as the Bible commands us to do? How do we know if we possess the principal thing of which the Bible speaks, which is wisdom? Look in verse number 17. I'm glad God didn't leave us in the dark about this. Verse 17, he says, first of all, this wisdom that is from above is pure. It's pure. James mentions this first because it is first in the order of importance. First, as it is related to this subject. In other words, there is no wisdom unless there is purity. This is the opposite of the worldly wisdom that he just described there in verse 14, 15, and 16. And we see what an awful picture that is. He says, there's bitter envy and strife in your hearts and so forth. It's devilish. And, the, and so real wisdom is the opposite of that. In other words, for the person with wisdom, purity is a priority in his life. And this matter of purity is put at the very top of the list because it affects everything in our life. If we're not living a life of purity, we're, our life is going to be tainted in every other way. Several months ago, there was a, a situation where many parts of Houston, they had to cut off the public water supply because the water was polluted. It wasn't fit to drink or fit to cook with or anything. The water that runs through the pipes to your house, if it is impure, it's going to taint everything that it touches. It'll have an effect on everything. You cook something and it'll be tainted by the impurity that's in the water. And the same thing is true in regards to sin in our life. It taints everything else. Sin has no place in the life of a Christian. And to harbor sin in our heart is to invite disaster into our life. Sin is never wise. Impurity in our life is an evidence that we are lacking wisdom. We don't even stop and think what we're doing to ourselves how we're, we're inflicting pain upon us and we're harming others. Now keep in mind, this matter of purity involves every area of our life. So many times we think about, when we think about purity, we're thinking about, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm on board with that. I stopped drinking a long time ago or I don't do drugs anymore or whatever. But listen, this matter of purity has to do with our thought life as well as anything else. If your thought life is impure, your life is impure. Our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, all of those things are involved in this matter of living a life of purity. And purity is an evidence of wisdom in our life. It's one of the ways of wisdom. And then notice verse 17, he moves on. Verse 17, he says, not only is it pure, but he says, it's peaceable. Have you ever thought about what a, what a large role peace plays in the life of a Christian? First of all, the Christian is at peace with God. Now that's not true before you're saved, 
right? Because you're a rebel against God. You're a sinner in the sight of God. You're not at peace with God. But Jesus came into this world to enable us to be at peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. We are at peace with God. Secondly, we can enjoy the peace of God. In spite of all of the turmoil and the strife and the difficulties that we face, God enables us to enjoy the peace of God. But then there's this matter of living at peace with others, and we do that by following the counsel that God has given us. Peace is something that is greatly needed everywhere. It's needed in every church, and it's wisdom that makes us to be peacemakers. Notice the word then. Verse 17, notice then. Wisdom is what? First of all, he said, he said it's pure. That's on top of the list. But then, then it's peaceable. The idea is to produce peace. We have to follow the order that's given here. First pure, then peaceable. The point is that without purity, there's not going to be the possibility of peace because sin always defiles, it disrupts, it divides, it destroys. We cannot enjoy a life of peace Unless there is purity of life. And then he says, verse 17, not only is it peaceable, but he says it's gentle. Gentle. That means patient. It speaks about moderation. It speaks about being fair and equitable. Mild and considerate. By the way, that's not always easy, is it? Even within your own family, it's not always easy to entertain an attitude like that. And because people are so different and sometimes so difficult to deal with, even our Christian brothers and sisters can be extremely hard to, you know, to get along with. And it requires patience. And here he's telling us wisdom is gentle. It's not like a bull in a china shop, in other words, but rather it's gentle with others. If we're going to be a peacemaker, that is essential to a life of peace, a demonstration of wisdom. One of the most important lessons I ever learned as a preacher is this. Over 50 years ago, And that is you have to learn to work with people as they are, not as you wish they were or as they ought to be. In other words, you can hold that standard up in somebody's face. This is the standard that you ought to live by. Or this is the standard that I wish that you were living by. And we can can harp preach the truth to them day after day after day after day. And if we do it with the wrong spirit, we're not going to get anywhere. How impatient we sometimes get with those that are out of the will of God. We seem to forget that we've been there, done that. We see some brother in Christ that is out of the will of God, is dropped out of church, that is inflicting injury on himself and on others, and we get so frustrated. And believe me, I'm speaking this out of experience because, boy, I'll tell you, especially as a young preacher, this was one of the biggest pitfalls in my life, 
is not being patient and trying to be gentle with other people, people that were obviously not living up to the standard of right and wrong. What we've got to remember is that everybody is a work in progress. Everybody. It's true of everyone. I'll never forget when it dawned on me that verse that says that we are to speak the truth in love. It's one thing to speak the truth. It's another thing to speak the truth in love. To be patient and gentle with other people. Gentleness is an evidence of wisdom. Now, notice verse 17. He says that wisdom is easy to be entreated. Now, in the Greek language, that's all in one word. And it simply means obeying and implies easily obeying or to be compliant. It's speaking about an attitude of submissiveness. Originally, this was a military term that was used in reference to the regular soldier that acknowledged the authority of his commanding officer and would submit himself to it. So that's the idea of the word. He's speaking about being reasonable and willing to listen. It's the opposite of being strong, stubborn, unyielding, unapproachable. It means rather that we are reasonable, that we're cooperative. That's what, that's what wisdom would have us to do. Sometimes we think it's such a great thing, you know, to just be obstinate about everything and that we prove that we're a rugged, two-fisted, individualist boy and we are really something because we so staunchly oppose this and fight against that. I'm not saying we ought not speak out against sin. That's not the point. I'm saying it's the attitude in which we confront the sin that makes all the difference in the world. And he's talking about those here that are easily to be entreated. People that you can, you can approach. People that, uh, that are willing to listen as it were. Nobody wants to take advice from somebody that is a know-it-all, somebody that doesn't take time to inquire and to express a depth of concern for the needs of the person. Wisdom says that we are easily entreated, and then it says, full of mercy and good fruits. Now, this is a dual description here of wisdom's work. It's a double definition of what we're talking about. What are we talking about? Somebody tell me. What, what, what is the subject? What is the theme? Wisdom. What about wisdom? Showing wisdom. The way of wisdom. The traits. And how we recognize wisdom. That's what we're talking about. Because if I tried to preach about everything related to wisdom, we'd be here for months. There's no way to do that. I just want us to leave here today with a working knowledge of how we recognize wisdom. Because if we don't recognize it, we won't realize whether we've got it or not. And it's so very important. Remember, it's the principal thing. That's what the Bible says. I didn't say that. It's the principal thing. So he says the fifth way that we recognize wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. I love that because it deals both with the hands and with the heart. You see, mercy withholds the judgment that a person deserves. And good fruits has to do with bestowing upon others what they need. 
We see both of those in the parable of the Good Samaritan. What a wonderful story that is. What a wonderful example that is of how we ought to be. The Good Samaritan comes along and finds this fellow half dead in the ditch. Of course, the religious elite of that day, uh, they've walked on by. They don't have time for a fool like that. But the Good Samaritan stops and he looks at the fellow and he gets down off of his beast and he ministers to the needs of the guy. He takes him to a place where he can acquire further help and says, if he needs anything else after I'm gone, put it on my tab. I'll take care of it. What a wonderful picture that is of Jesus. Amen. What a wonderful picture it is of what we ought to be, full of mercy and good fruits in our life. That's an evidence of wisdom because if those things are missing in our life, then wisdom is absent. Then he says, verse number 17, without partiality. This has to do with treating people fairly. In other words, without any favoritism. By the way, this doesn't mean that we treat everyone the same. That would be very unwise. Some people say, well, I, I treat everybody just alike. Why would you do that? I, 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 I don't treat every woman like I treat my wife. I, I don't go around kissing the women. I kiss my wife. I don't kiss other women. I, I, I don't treat all of my kids exactly the same. They're all different. They're, they're different. Their temperament is different. Their needs are different. You've got to treat them different. The idea when he says without partiality is the fact it has to do with being fair. In other words, it's using the same standard to determine how we interact with them. We don't have one standard for this person and another standard for that person. It means that we just don't give preferential treatment to people just because we favor them or because of what they can offer us. And let me tell you, this kind of nonsense goes on all the time. Partiality in the world. We, we think about what's going on in our nation today. People being prejudiced toward other people just because of the color of their skin or, or whatever, it, whatever the matter might be. And we know that it goes on. It happens all of the time. Showing partiality to some at the expense of others is one of the dumbest things we could do. And we wouldn't do it if we had that wisdom from above. That, that'd cure that problem in a hurry. Now notice verse 17 again, and here's number seven on the list. He says, without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is horribly harmful. I mean, it has done untold damage to the cause of Christ. And, and I want you to notice that it's mentioned immediately after, after partiality. Because you see, partiality is one of the most common evidences of hypocrisy. Have you ever thought about how awful it is to, to show no love to certain people, no respect for certain people because there's something that you don't like and yet it's someone that Jesus bled and died for. Think about that. Some folks brag about how much they love God 
but then they treat others like the scum of the earth. They'd tell you they love God. They'll sing about how much they love Jesus, but they go through life mistreating others. And the Bible says people like that are liars. How can you say you love God when you don't actually love others? And if we're, if, if we're showing partiality and so forth, if we're not easily entreated and, and what have you, then there's certainly no evidence of love in our heart. Uh, some people treat their pets better than they do their family. I'm telling you the truth. That's true. You know it's true. I, I'm sorry if it offends you, but it just really bothers me when, when people, you know, and I, look, I, I love dogs. I won't talk about cats, but I love dogs. I, <laughs> boy, I got in trouble with a lot of people then. But something about it just bothers me when someone says, we lost another member of our family today. Fido died. It's a dog. Really? And, and, and we live in a day and an age where, man, you've got to have a certain... Look, we had two dogs when I was a kid growing up. Old Shorty, a beagle hound we hunted with, and the other one was a kind of a half-breed chow that would chew your leg off named Rusty. You know what they lived on? They lived on table scraps. Not, not all of this high-dollar stuff that... I know you think, you, you think I've forgotten all about my subject, but I haven't. I'm telling you, some people treat their pets better than they treat members of their own family. They really do. We talk about impartiality. Are you, are you kidding me? Just look at what some people are doing to other people, hurting other people. The injustice in all of that. And then you want to sit back and talk about how much you love Jesus. You're a hypocrite. And where the hypocrisy is, it's, it, it exists because wisdom is absent. If we had the wisdom from above, we would determine with all of our heart that there would be no hypocrisy in our life. The word hypocrisy comes from those that, that played different parts in those in the plays back in that day. In other words, the fellow would come out with a mask on, playing one part in the drama. Then he'd go backstage, get another mask, come out and play a different part. That's what hypocrites do. They're putting on their mask. They're playing one part. And it's one thing to play like a Christian. It's another thing to be like a Christian. And if we're truly wise, there will be no insincerity. There will be no pretense. There will be... No mask, no hypocrisy. The ways of wisdom. You don't have any idea how much I'd like to camp out here and just keep talking and talking and talking about this. Look at verse 18. This is going to wrap it all up and it's going to give you a picture of what wisdom produces. Verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown. It's, it's like a seed. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I spent more than an hour yesterday just reading and looking and examining every word, every phrase in this verse. 
It's that important. And the bottom line, when all is said and done, it amounts to this. We reap what we sow. And it's telling us here that godly wisdom, wisdom that is displayed by the things that I just mentioned, wisdom manifested by purity and peace and these other things, which we desperately need in these troublesome times, comes as a result of those that have peace, that are sowing in peace. Look, it's not something that comes overnight. You sow a seed, you put it in the ground, and it doesn't crop up the next day. You have to wait. It comes at a later time. And the same thing is true. Notice he says that the fruit of peace that is the product of it, is sown like a seed in peace. That's so important that you get that. It is sown in peace of them that make peace. In peace of them that make peace. In other words, those that... that through wisdom, have attained this peace that he's talking about. They become the sowers of seed that bring peace into the lives of others. That is, if we haven't received it, we can't sow it. And if we don't sow it, then there is no no harvest to reap. Have you ever thought about the transforming power of wisdom? That's what, that's what he's talking about here. The power of wisdom to transform not just our life, but going back to verse 13 where he talks about us showing, demonstrating this wisdom. Not by boasting, but by behavior. By others being able to see in us. That there is a person living a life of purity and peace. They, they are a person that has mercy toward others. They're gentle. And, and that's, that's a wise man. It's the principal thing. This is the one thing above everything else that we Christians ought to be striving for. And if we can have a church like that, others will leave here saying, I'll tell you one thing. They don't have the best preacher. They, they don't have the best choir. They don't have the most beautiful building. But that's the wisest bunch of people I've ever seen in my life. That's what we ought to be striving for, to be known for our wisdom. Because when that happens, it has transforming power in the lives of others. Again, I urge you to look at our nation, what we're doing to ourselves, and understand that the solution comes, listen, one day at a time, one person at a time, not through some mass meeting out here. It's one person at a time, one day at a time, as we touch the lives of others and make a difference in their lives, automatically that begins to spread. And it begins to change communities and societies. I hope that's, I hope that's what you want for your life, to be, to be known as a person that is walking in wisdom. And there's only one place to get it, 
1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Christ is the wisdom of God. He is made unto us wisdom. And if you study Proverbs, you'll see that wisdom is personified. By that, I mean that the writer speaks about wisdom as though it were a person by the way it is. And his name is Jesus. He is the source of wisdom, and there's no excuse for me, you, or anybody else doing without it. Because James said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Wisdom. It's the principal thing. Therefore, therefore get it, the Bible says. Get wisdom. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for not only saving us, but for opening the door to a life of abundance, as Jesus promised. To open the door to the possibilities to being able to to do things we've never done before, to live a life that is worth living, a life that will matter, a life that will totally change others. We thank you for that possibility. And I pray this morning that you'll help us to have a desire for that to become a reality in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. While we stand and as we sing together, this because I I feel certain that there are some folks that maybe feel like a little boy did. This is a true story. This young lad had read a certain book and he become greatly troubled that his life seemed so insignificant. He He just felt like that there was no purpose, no rhyme, no reason for him to be here. That that he just didn't matter and that the world was so bad that there wasn't anything he could do to change anything. And so his dad that night had a talk with the young lad and in trying to encourage him and help him to understand, to get him to see that you can make a difference. He said, suppose that you were flown by a plane and dumped out somewhere over the Sahara Desert. Just, you're just left there. And suppose that you picked up a one grain of sand and moved it just a millimeter. What then? The little boy said, well, I guess I'd die of dehydration. 
That's what you would assume. I mean, this story's not making any sense whatsoever. And the dad said, no, no, no. He said, I mean, what kind of effect would it have on the world? If you, you just move that grain of sand just a millimeter. The little boy obviously was troubled by trying to come up with an answer. And the dad said, you would have changed the Sahara Desert. Now think about that. You would have changed the Sahara Desert. And finally the little boy got it. It it, it dawned on him that although you can't make some big major change that's going to get your name in the headlines of the newspaper, you can make a little change wherever you are. Look folks, that's all God's expecting from us is to be a change agent in this world. That's why Jesus said that we are to let our light shine before men. And let them see your good works. Why? So they'll glorify your Father which is in heaven. Wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody, somebody someday come running down this aisle and said, I want to be saved. And they began to testify how they had been watching you. From the day that you professed Christ as your Savior, they had been watching you and they took note of the changes they saw in your life. The transformation. And that transformation became your testimony. You didn't grab them by the collar and scream in their ear and preach the truth to them. No, you just lived it out in shoe leather and let your light shine. And let me tell you, you can't do that without it having an effect on somebody else. And when we walk in the ways of wisdom, we're going to change somebody somewhere. It'll make a difference. It'll make a difference. Let's sing another verse. I, I don't know what God might be speaking to your heart about today, but certainly if you're here not saved, please, whatever you do, trust the Lord this morning while we sing. Heaven.